Each year, the Veterans Affairs Office of Inspector General looks at VA staffing. In particular, whether crucial medical staff job slots are filled or if VA has what are known as severe occupational staffing shortages. It's had mixed results recently. For what it found in the latest report, the Deputy Assistant IG for Healthcare Inspections, Julie Kroviak, talked with Tom Temin. You looked across the VA facilities, and it's fair to say this study is done place by place and adds correct. up to across. So the results are mixed across VA facilities, correct? Yeah, we try to tell a story individual and specific to each facility, but giving a national glimpse to what's going on with staffing in VHA. And what is the source of the data for evaluating staffing? So we actually survey. We send surveys out to each individual facility. We have a contact that we distribute a survey to, and they fill it out based on their discussions with leadership and the needs that they've defined. And just as an aside question before we get into the results, is there any way that personnel data systems could be harnessed to sort of generate these reports automatically? Um, I would think it'd be more appropriate to have some discussions to understand what current trends are. So, yes, they have their own databases that suggest where they're, quote unquote, hurting and in need. But it does you know, require some discussion at the leadership level to rank. All right. So the genesis of this entire series of investigations was, I think, in 2014 and then later in 2017, VA was found to have tens of thousands of openings, I think, and having trouble filling them. This goes back to several secretaries. What did you find this year? Give us the macro numbers on unfilled medical positions, and then maybe we'll talk about some of the locations. Yeah, just to be clear, we're talking about different things than vacancies. So what a facility might define as a critical staffing shortage might be quite different than what they have. Have listed as a vacancy. So the criteria to define something as a severe shortage is in the Code of Federal Regulations. And so the facility uses that criteria when describing where their shortages are. So just to put it home, you could have 100 vacancies in pharmacy and still not rank that as a critical shortage. Right. But shortages are the result of some level of vacancies, though, correct? Potentially. That goes to our staffing model issue. But you're right. It wouldn't shock us to see where you've got 50 vacancies is also listed as a shortage. And you'll find across the board for the occupational shortages, you're looking at doctors and nurses on the clinical side for sure, which is no shock. We've seen that. The disappointment this year is that the trend of going down on shortages reversed. And this year we're reporting that they have increased shortages across the board for all facilities that we surveyed. And shortage means severe shortage as defined in the regulations? as defined by the criteria set in the Code of Federal Regulations. And what is the definition? So, you know, they have a whole bunch of criteria, but what they really rank is the nationwide recognized shortage specific to a geographical area, specific skills, and the availability of qualified candidates. Right. So therefore, the vacancies could be explainable by a shortage of candidates out there in the marketplace. It kind of looks at the holistic picture then, not simply the open slots in the job roster. Correct. Correct. All right. What did you find? The interesting thing about the 2017 law, it gave us some authority to look into non-clinical positions as well. And what we're seeing for non-clinical is an impressive shortage of janitorial staff. And clearly that's a huge issue for facilities providing medical care. And I suspect COVID weighed into that. There are increasing demands on these sets of workers. They're lower on the pay scale. So you see a lot of turnover and unfortunately a lot of competition amongst communities 
where there's a higher paying community hospital potentially to grab those from the department. Janitorial then you could classify as perhaps lower skilled, but really critical to making sure that a facility operates correctly. Oh, absolutely. And um, I really am more worried about the lower pay. You know, in terms of skill, every time a facility takes on any type of worker, they invest in training and janitorial, especially in a hospital setting, they require a significant amount of training and retraining to make sure things are up to code and ready to serve patients. That's interesting. So the lack of janitorial staff, do you look into the causes of it or what do the facilities say is their issue there? Yeah, the facilities will repeatedly describe that as competition and high turnover, and the high turnover is likely related to that competition factor. Right. Competition for janitorial jobs in other domains than medicine might be less demanding or the same. Potentially seen as safer during a pandemic. Or they could go to a private health care facility and get paid better for the same work and skill. Exactly. Exactly. And that's a common battle VA has been fighting. Yeah, I was talking with someone the other night, and they said if trash pickup stopped in Washington, D.C. or any of the big suburbs, in three days we would look like a third-world country with the trash piled up. That's kind of what's going on. absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, when you have patients and their families thinking, oh, the hospitals, the doctors, and the nurses, yeah, except when you walk in and it's filthy, dirty, and you don't want to get your care there for very good reason. We're speaking with Julie Kroviak, Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Healthcare Inspections at the Veterans Affairs Department. And we'll return to that, but what about the Title 38 doctors, nurses, practitioners, severe shortages? So again, it hits um, psychology and psychiatry pretty hard. Recognized shortages, again, unfortunately, not unique to VHA, but we were not surprised at all to see those rank pretty high or very high on the list of clinical shortages. And VA is working hard. You know, they have retention bonuses. They're doing everything they can to effectively recruit, but they are, again, facing that same battlefield that the rest of the nation's healthcare system is facing. And you do show macro figures of the numbers of severe shortages across the country. What is the number this year versus the last couple of years? We saw a jump in terms of shortages across all occupational staffing shortages up to 2,600. And, you know, last year we saw 2,100 roughly. So that was a bump across all the staff. And the number of occupational series listed this year jumped to 285, and that was 256 last year. And again, those had been tracking down for the past five years. So this bump up is, you know, an unpleasant, but not terribly surprising in light of what's going on in healthcare. And on that psychology and psychiatry shortage, same issue, competition and pay? Absolutely. And, you know, they have a harder time recruiting in the rural areas. They have an advantage with their telehealth systems in place, but they are still struggling to meet the demands for especially their high-risk veterans, which unfortunately happen to kind of hang out in these rural areas that are most definitely in need. Then what were your recommendations for VA? We made no recommendations, actually. This is meant to be a data-driven report to really inform stakeholders, but also the department of what their local leaders are describing as their biggest needs. But based on the situation and, and the climate in healthcare now, it's really meant to be more informative. We obviously, you know, encourage their use of the tools to recruit and retain, but recognize there are just a lot of barriers to hiring and retaining qualified staff. When the question comes up of personnel in other domains, say cybersecurity or 
this agency or that agency. OPM often comes back and says, well, we've got 125 possible job flexibilities within the federal hiring system, the merit systems that you can use and nobody uses them. Is that true for VHA? Do they have flexibilities and authorities perhaps they're not exercising enough? Well, well, they are exercising direct hire, which is critical for them to use, especially. And they've had that flexibility for the clinical staff. But now in that we can actually recommend using those tools for non-clinical staff to support hospital functions. That's a pretty powerful tool to bypass a lot of the burdens of hiring in the federal government. But I imagine even though there's no recommendations, this report must get the attention of the highest levels of VA leadership because Lord knows they've got a lot of flies buzzing around they've got to swat at, but you can't get customer experience, you can't get care levels better without the people to do it. Absolutely. They use this as a very important tool in making many of their decisions as we use it as a tool to inform our stakeholders. You know, if we have a hotline about a specific facility and the issue relates to ER nurse staffing, the first thing I'm going to do is go to this report database and understand, well, what did that facility say about nurses in the ER in terms of their needs? And is it matching with the allegations we're getting? Can we draw connections to support better and more meaningful recommendations? Is there any single major facility that looks really good in terms of how it compares to the average here? Unfortunately, no. I mean, we're seeing the same needs defined, especially on that clinical setting where we report on psychology, psychiatry, and nurses, that they're struggling. And it's an unfortunate, but again, not surprising occurrence. Julie Kroviak is Deputy Assistant Inspector General for Healthcare Inspections at Veterans Affairs, talking there with Tom Temin. We'll post this interview along with a link to her report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Check in with Federal Drive On Demand. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader? And what about them inspired you? You I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. 
he um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment. And, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really, it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, Admit it, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and, and how's that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office. And lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. 
And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.